Welcome to the Vell Institute podcast. I'm your humble servant and host, Terry Weaver. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org. That's V-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact. This is a quick bio pre-interview for Bob Milner. He is a decorated veteran who served seven years in the United States Air Force. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Business and a Master of Business Administration, and then went on to complete two years of his PhD work in organizational development and executive leadership. Bob has spent the last 25 years leading luxury vehicle operations at a corporate level for two large public automotive retailers as a managing partner. The primary focus of his career has been turning around underperforming operations by building strong customer-centric, culture-driven, performance-based teams and then getting out of their way. In 2014, Bob co-founded and was the general manager of one of the most successful dealership launches in Mercedes-Benz history. He was a general manager and partner with Mercedes-Benz of the Woodlands. Earlier this year, Bob semi-retired. He and his wife, Teresa, live in the Woodlands along with their five rescue dogs. They have four children and two grandchildren. Bob is a finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. He and his wife are very active philanthropic leaders in their community. He's an adjunct professor at Lone Star College and currently serves on the board with the board of directors with Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion, the Woodlands Chamber of Commerce, He's also on the Executive Leadership Council for Memorial Hermann the Woodlands, the 21 Strong Foundation, the Executive Advisory Council for Interfaith of the Woodlands, and the Montgomery County Crime Stoppers. He's, in a, he's a graduate of the Accenture Executive Leadership Development Program and the Thayer Leadership Development Group at West Point Military Academy. One of Bob's most recent ventures is the founding of Turbo Consulting. I hope you enjoy this interview with somebody who really encompasses what Vell is all about. He's a veteran, he's an entrepreneur, and he's a leader, and our conversation is wide-ranging. We talk a lot about leadership, culture building, and, and really principles of life. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our interview with Mr. Bob Milner. All right, well, I appreciate you sitting down and taking some time. Uh, I've gotten the pleasure to hang out with you and learn with you over the past couple of years, and I'm excited to be able to share some of those learnings with Vell Institute and other people because you got a lot to you got a lot to teach. You got a lot of knowledge and, and wisdom and experience uh, locked up that we're going to try to help others with. So um, I'm going to put a couple resources in the uh, in the show notes to find out if somebody wants to dig into your kind of your past and know more about your bio. But I want to start off kind of early in life, your first experience in, in the car business, because you've spent some time in the car business, and I, I listened to an interview that you did, and, and you said that you started out sweeping the floors. Can you, can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Actually, when I was in high school, um, I got a job one summer working at what was Chuck Hutton Chevrolet, which at the time was probably the second largest Chevrolet operation in the world. And they had a gigantic parts operation. They had a warehouse that was bigger than a Walmart. They had their own tractor-trailer trucks that they distributed parts throughout the Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, Mississippi region. So I got a job sweeping the parts warehouse. I would come in in the morning for two hours and sweep it, and then I would come back late in the evening and clean it up again. And so that was my first early introduction into the car business. And it's actually interesting that I ended up making the automotive business a profession in my career because I hated the environment I worked in when I worked at this car dealership because everybody there was very grouchy. They smoked like two packs of cigarettes a day. They cussed all day long. They were miserable. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how can anybody work in an environment where every day they're miserable? And I always thought that is the last thing in the world 
I will ever do. I would actually have to be starving, begging on the streets before I would go to work at a car dealership. And, and tell, tell me, remind me how long you spent in the car business. Over 30 years. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? <laughs> uh, some things you get involved in, you can never leave. Well, it was interesting. It's like some things you get involved in and they really, you see the potential, not for just you, but for the impact you can make. And then they become a passion. And that's what happened to me with, you know, the car business. And, and tell, tell us about your last position in the car business, kind of where you ended that career. So I had the great opportunity to move back to the Woodlands, which I lived here before uh, in early 2014, and be a partner in the opening of the new Mercedes dealership in the Woodlands. I had the opportunity to you know, be involved in the construction of it, putting the team together, creating the culture, the vision, the mission for the business, um, everything about the business, you know, I had the great opportunity to really be part of the genesis of it. So there's a couple of things that come to mind when uh, when somebody says luxury. I think there's a couple of words or symbols or brands that come to mind. One of them is Mercedes-Benz, I believe. Um, what did you learn specifically from Mercedes-Benz? Can you share some of that, like uh, just lessons learned, how, how they got to that point? Yeah, actually, you know, Mercedes-Benz is probably one of the top five or six recognized brands in the world, worldwide. Um, but the interesting thing about Mercedes-Benz, except for a brief period in their history, they are so dedicated to really two things. And one of them is excellence. So they're actually an engineering company that just happens to manufacture cars. They really focus on leading, cutting-edge, engineering, and quality. And then the other piece that they really focus on is the experience of their customers. A lot of people don't know much about them, but you know they pretty much have invented over 90% of every safety device that is on any kind of motor vehicle. Not only have they invented them, but because they feel like they have a responsibility to be a leader in that portion of their field, they share that technology with every other company. They don't patent it and protect it and charge billions of dollars for people to uh, use that technology. They're very open with sharing the things that they develop when they come to safety in a vehicle. That, that's interesting. So they are, uh, they're out for um, looking out for, for safety, clearly. Yeah, very everyone. much so, yeah. Um, without, without, not necessarily with a profit motive, but they want to they help everybody all the manufacturers keep people safe. Right. Wow. Interesting. Good learnings. I want to, I got to know you about three years ago and I saw a lot going on in the community and I saw Mercedes Benz doing a lot. And when I kind of dug into what was going on, I found out that you were behind a lot of that and your name kind of became synonymous with uh, community leader. Um, you, you supported a lot of things. You did a lot of good. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Well, first of all, I think you know God's blessed me in my life and put me in a position to where I have the ability to make a significant and positive impact in the community. But I think also as a business leader, we have a social responsibility to that. I think if more businesses really understood the social responsibility they bear for the communities that they choose to do business in, that there would be less need in communities, you know. Uh, there would be less hunger, there would be less homelessness, there would be less, uh, you know, children who are abused, all of those different causes, uh, because businesses have the power to make change, right? They carry a lot of weight in the community. It's not just an individual, it's a force. Mm -hmm. And I really felt like that our brand, because the brand is so connected internationally with things like safety, things like engineering, things like experience. And my partner and I really believed as servant leaders, we had a responsibility as a business to be the leader in service. And so that's how we chose to build our business. Our culture was based around that. We paid our employees uh, time off during the year to volunteer in the community. Um, you know, we were involved not just with money and charity, but with a lot of time. Um, you know, even during Harvey, my team spent two weeks in vans, you know, 
on their own. They volunteered to do it. As a matter of fact, after the first couple of days, they were begging to be involved in the mission of transporting goods, transporting clothing, taking things to the community centers where people who had been flooded out needed things. And, you know, it was very impactful to see that a culture you started almost five years ago was so deep within your team that people were begging and volunteering to go, you know, be involved in that type of effort. Yeah, I want to, I want to talk, stay on that servant leadership part a little bit and, and share a story with the audience. Uh, right after Harvey, they opened the, um, the distribution center up in Conroe. Right. And at the time, I was a, a, an associate pastor with the Ark Church, and we were up there volunteering. We probably had a team of, I don't know, maybe 150 people. And we were up there for a, a couple of weeks. But uh, while we were out there, uh, I was out leading a team outside, and I recognized one of the Mercedes-Benz Mercedes Benz vans pulling up. And I thought to myself, well, that's cool. Bob has some of his people out here. And then as it got closer, I looked into the front windshield, and there you were driving uh, the van. You were out there busting your hide. You were a part of the mission. How important is the servant leadership and then being on the front lines and not only leading by setting up a company that incentivizes that kind of stuff, but also being a part of it and, and kind of being out front? I think we have a responsibility as servant leaders to lead from the front in certain times and to lead from the rear in other times. And I think it's important that we're able to distinguish between when we need to be where. Um, you know, I read a good, great book one time that's called Eaters, Leaders Eat Last. Um, and I think that really, if you read the book, it really talks about the significance of others first. Um, but I think, you know, by me being the person that was leading that, it showed our team that, hey, I'm willing to go carry water just like you are. I'm willing to go sweat all day long in the heat, right, handing out canned goods at a community service center just like you are because it's important not just to me, but it's important to our community. And we as a business leader have a responsibility to serve that community. And I think that was the piece that was important to me. That's good. <clears throat> That's good. I, I, uh, I know that you're a constant learner. You, you're a voracious leader. Um, you invest in yourself. Uh, and I wanted to ask you to share why that's important Well, for a leader and for others. Okay. Well, I, I think the biggest thing is, is that if we're not continually developing ourselves and growing what I call my intellectual and emotional toolbox then we become stagnant. And in life and business, if you become stagnant, you really begin to go backwards. Because today, the environment is, is, is one of change, constant change, constant technology improvement. You know, our society, both as an individual and a business, three months from now will be much different than it is even today. So if you're not continually investing in yourself, I think in some ways you lose your relativity and your relevance uh, to what really should be significant in your life. Um, and I think in some ways you also have the potential to lose your ability to connect, right? And so I think that's why it's important. Um, quite honestly, I got it from my father. He was a lifelong learner. He really established this passion, passion in me for learning, for, you know, the search for knowledge. Um, you know, he graduated from college on the same day I graduated from high school. Mm. And he went on to get a master's degree, a doctorate, and he, and he really instilled in me this, this understanding that, you know, you're a living organism and you have to constantly feed it in order for it to be effective. Let's stay there since you went there about your father. Um, he not only was he's a, he was a great learner, but I, I know you've shared that he was a, uh, uh, he was, uh, talk about a little, little bit about his background. He was in the military. He was a ranger. So my dad was a ranger, got out of the military, moved back to Memphis, became a street cop. Um, you know, and so when we grew up as, when I grew up as a kid, my dad was a street cop. My mom was a bank teller. Um, and w we weren't very well off. <laughs> you know, we lived in a three bedroom, one bath duplex. There were four kids and my parents, so, but you know, we didn't know any better, but I think, you know, the service passion in me comes from my father because he always got us to understand that it, regardless of where you are in life, regardless of what your challenges are in life, there's someone else out, out there who can use you, who needs something from you, who you can help. 
So, you know, even as a young kid, when we would get the Sears Christmas catalog, which I don't even think there is one anymore, you know, you'd go kind of highlight the toys you wanted Santa Claus to bring you. But we always picked out a toy to take to the church to give to families who couldn't afford toys. Um, you know, on Thanksgiving Day, we would go and serve at the church's food program for hungry people and homeless people before we would go to my grandparents to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner. So he always got us to understand that everybody in life has the opportunity to give back, some in different ways and some in greater scales. But we have a responsibility, no matter what we're able to give, to give. That's good. Well, you've uh, certainly carried that torch. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let me let me ask you about your uh, kind of habits and, and routines. You do uh, do a lot of personal development and reading. Do you have any process for that? Do you have any routines? or? I do. Okay. Um, the first thing in the morning is I really try to feed myself. And by feed myself, I try to get into the Bible or get into some book that is related to Scripture or related, related to faith growth. So that's the first thing I really try to do is I try to feed myself that way. And then right after that, the next thing I do is I get you know, probably 40 to 50 different types of newsletters or business articles, and I'll scan those and look for, I believe, articles that may be significant to me or significant to things that I'm working on. And I'll go and I'll open those up in, in Google Chrome so that they're open, and I leave them there. And then after that, I'll plan my day. I'll go through my calendar. And then most of the times I'm now out doing whatever my day is planned for. And then when I come back at night, I sort of do everything I need to do to close up my day. And then I go to those articles that I've opened up in Google and I scan them. And if I think there's something that I want to really have as a reference later, then I have folders that I save these under, whether they be culture, leadership, service, you know, many different categories. I have one folder that is articles and I have many folders, subfolders under it. And then what I'll do is I'll save them into a PDF and then I'll, as I read them, I will go highlight the things that are significant to me in them. And then I will have a little journal I keep with them. So I'll say, okay, maybe this article has some, some great ideas and thoughts on servant leadership. And I have um, like a, an electronic journal that's servant leadership and I'll list the name of the article and I'll list like what page that I highlighted so it's easy for me to go back and reference it. And I actually developed that habit when I was working on my, started working on my doctorate because, you know, when you're doing a lot of research for your doctorate, you read a ton of articles, you do a lot of research. Not everything is applicable, but a lot of things are and sometimes it's maybe only two sentences, sometimes it may be the entire article. So I learned how to create a reference system to go back and look for very specific things and save my time of having to go. And I learned it the hard way because I used to just save the articles and then have to go back and read the entire article. But now I'm very specific with how I reference back to things. Are there some uh, some of those newsletters that you um, gravitate towards, like a top two or three that you could share maybe? Um, I mean, one of the ones that I really read in depth every day is I get the Harvard Business Review um, newsletter of the day and it'll have eight to ten articles that are topical articles. They always have something great about leadership in there. They almost always have something great about culture. Uh, and then sometimes they have some very specific topical articles that may deal with a class I'm teaching in college or a project I'm working on with a client. So, you know, those bring a lot of great value to me. That's one of them. And then I get Tony Evans' newsletter, who he's a pastor in Dallas, and he has, he has the ability to bring a very unique perspective to real-life situations. And so that's one of the ones I read first thing every morning because there's always some little piece of nourishment in there that can help me get through the day, the week, or brings certain perspective to something that I'm dealing with either personally or professionally. Those are probably the two biggest, uh, but I get them from lots of academic institutions. I get lots of automotive newsletters. I get lots of, I belong, I don't know, probably 15 different leadership organizations and I get their newsletters. I get from academic newsletters from a teaching perspective. Um, but those are probably the two that every day I look forward to reading. Awesome, good. Since you, since you talked a little bit about 
about faith in your in your morning routine, how important has that been for you over your business career? You've developed yourself from sweeping a floor to being a co-owner of, of a world-class dealership. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Was it a process? Um, it was a process that I went in and out of, actually. You know, I went through a period in my life where it was very much a significant piece of my process moved into a piece of my life where it wasn't as significant and you know sometimes I realized the results of not maintaining that significance um, but you know I came back and understood that it's the foundation of everything that I do and everything focus that I have in my life so it's very foundational to everything today um, you know and I think one of the great things is is life is not without challenges and, you know, God has many messages to you about being able to let him help you get through challenges and trying to move through them instead of trying to move through them on your own. That's good. You're, you're also a veteran uh, and a good friend. And, man, you've shared some good experiences. How is being a military veteran? Talk a little bit about that and talk about that, how it's helped you or hurt you just share a little bit about that well I think it's helped me in many ways because being a veteran and you know I think uh, it, it brings a certain amount of discipline I grew up in a very disciplined household I played sports so I think if you're going to be good at sports you have to have self-discipline and I think the military just continued to build upon, build upon that my service um, I think it gave me a perspective of life at that time I had never had because I was introduced to a lot of things. Um, you know, I was a fairly skilled athlete, and, you know, so I felt like I could pretty much accomplish anything. And some of the things that I accomplished in the military, I accomplished many times, they were more mental than physical because it really got me to understand how powerful your brain is and how you can choose to let it be a limiter or you can choose to let it be something that facilitates, right, that enables you. And I learned how to let it be an enabler for me. I learned that just because you're tired doesn't mean that you have to quit. I learned that just because you've been defeated doesn't mean that you have to quit. Um, so I think that was one big thing it did for me. Um, the other thing it did for me is uh, it really gave me a great perspective on um, hierarchy. And I don't mean that from like dictatorship but understanding the significance of leadership and the impact that positive leadership can have on someone and also the impact that less than positive impact can have on someone. Because I worked for different colonels and generals during my career, some of them were very positive leaders and some of them were very dictatorial, very hardline leaders, yellers and screamers. And so it kind of helped mold me into understanding the type of leader I certainly didn't want to be as I developed in my career and really wanted to work hard to be as I developed in my career. And you spent how, how long and what branch? Um, I was in the Air Force for a little over seven years. And what did you do? So uh, I did a lot of things. I was uh, a military training advisor, and then I worked in uh, contracting. Um, I did strategic planning. So I did a lot of different things. It was, uh, it was very enjoyable. I still have friends from there. Uh, you know, it was a, it's a great camaraderie when... You know, you're a veteran. There's a certain camaraderie that I don't think even in sports you can you can have that same camaraderie. Yeah, I liken it to um, it's, it's very impactful. Joining the military and serving your country is something that, if you do, can never be taken from you. Right. It's similar to a college career, um, but but uh, it's, it's something that you can be proud of, and, and hopefully most people out there are proud of it because they did sacrifice some things to go out and serve. Yeah, and I think, you know, during our time, um, there was no war, so those who chose to serve chose to serve on their own. It was something they did because they, it was something they really wanted to do. And I think, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of pride of knowing that you've worn your nation's uniform, that you've represented our country's flag and our Constitution. However, you chose to serve in the military, whatever your role was, everybody's role was the same, and that was you were a representative of our flag. That's right. That's good. So you spent the last 30 years uh, 
turning around under underperforming businesses, uh, helping kind of revitalize dealerships. Um, is, is that correct? Yeah. The primary focus of most of my career was is I was a person that they sent in to troubleshoot why something was underperforming um, and develop the team, the culture, the process, the accountability, turn the operation around, make it productive, turn it into a leader, and then I moved on to the next challenge and that team stayed in place and carried the torch forward, mostly. So over, over those 30 years, um, what, what, what was the focus that you kind of uncovered that you needed to, to, to fix or, or the, the main contributor to the, the failings of the dealership? Um, and, and we're going somewhere with this, but can you share a little bit about that? Did it typically uh, underperform because of one thing? Yeah, well, maybe two things. Okay. One, I think it was a lack of and very poor communication. And then I think people come to work each day and they want to know what you expect of them. I think that's the first piece. And then I think the other piece to it was a culture of accountability. Um, okay, I know what you expect of me, then how are you going to hold me accountable to it? Because if you're going to hold me accountable to it, I want everybody else on the team to also be accountable. And I think that's a piece of the culture that people, when they begin to buy into that accountability, the culture begins to take on its own um, performance management because great performers don't want to be surrounded by average performers. So they tend to begin to manage that for you. I think those were the two biggest things. And, and culture, culture setting is a function of the leadership. Yes, it is. So We set the vision, but at the end of the day, we aren't the culture. Okay. We're the vision for the culture, but in an organization, your culture is only as good as the lowest level of your organization. If they're not living your culture, then you don't really have a culture. I mean, there are a lot of organizations that have multi-cultures, some parts of them good, some parts of them bad. I would say, you know, Ford is a great example of that. They were a very hierarchical organization, and they had different types of culture throughout their organization, and one of which was um, probably damaging to the company is that the senior part of the organization didn't communicate with anything lower than the senior part of the organization. They had their own elevator to get to their floors. They had their own lunchrooms. So they never had the opportunity to engage in the rest of the team. And so when Bill Ford finally decided he really wanted to change Ford, he was able to talk Bill Mullally to move from Boeing to Ford. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to go to a conference that Bill Mullally spoke at. And one of the things he talked about was what a huge cultural challenge it was for him. Um, but the first thing he did is he did away with the private elevators. He started making senior people eat lunch in where the other rest of the people in the building ate lunch. Um, and he started in not just inviting his senior team to his meetings, but he would invite middle managers to the meetings because what he realized is that his senior managers over years had become filters. And they only told the senior leadership what they thought the senior leadership really wanted to hear as opposed to what people were really telling them. And I think, you know, the reason why Ford was so successful during Malali's tenure, they were the only domestic automotive manufacturer to not need government assistance to survive the recession in the late 2000s was because he had created such a culture of communication and accountability. So with that, that's good, and thanks for elaborating uh, with that story. You've taken the past 30 years of, of experience plus your military career and other things that you've done, and you've decided to do a couple things. Uh, one of them is to start Turbo Consulting, and your focus is largely on uh, culture building. Is that correct? That's correct. Can you tell, tell me a little bit more about why you chose that and, and a little bit about Turbo? Well, I think one of the things that small businesses struggle with is the identity of who they really are and what they want their impact to be. And I think that comes from vision and culture. And to me, an ethos of a small business is your vision and your culture. That's really your ethos, right, in my mind. And so as I began to talk to people about the challenges they were having with their businesses, it was quite clear that it's the same things that I dealt with 
working on my entire career, and that was communication, accountability, and culture. It wasn't typically operations things. It was the EQ things. And so I really felt like there was a need to help small businesses in that area um, because a lot of times entrepreneurs, they're the visionary. They have the great idea, but they may not be have great leadership skills. They may not have understand what true customer experience is versus customer service. So that's really where I've tried to focus my efforts is I want to bring a great deal of clarity and focus to who you are, which is who your, what your culture is, why you exist, and how you want to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And I think all of that goes back into the culture, the communication, and the accountability within it. And for, for Turbo, it's spelled T-E-R-B-O, correct? Yes. And you guys are focusing on what sectors? So um, it's actually interesting. I'm kind of uh, diametric right now in the sectors. I've got a couple of manufa- small manufacturing companies that I'm working with. I have quite a few nonprofits I work with, which I really enjoy. Um, and then I have some professional firms that, you know, small professional firms that have anywhere from five to 25 people within their, their organization that they've asked me to come in and really kind of help them develop a feedback system, develop culture, help them put them included into an accountability system. So, you know, the entrepreneur, the leader, the CEO, along with the rest of the team, put all of them into the system, and I'm sort of the facilitator of that. Why do you, uh, why do you enjoy working with nonprofits? Oh, wow. I mean, I think the, one of the biggest reasons is, is they serve such a significant need in a community. I think the other thing is is that, you know, in some nonprofits there is a um, missing element to their organization because a lot of them are passion-driven or development-driven. So they haven't had the business experience, right? And they haven't had the cultural development, the challenge of leading a business. And many nonprofits have realized over the last few years that they truly are a business entity that serves a charitable cause, right? And so what I enjoy working about them is they are just sponges for knowledge. I mean, they want to learn so much about leadership, so much about color, um, culture, so much about strategic thinking, Right. So, yeah, great. We're raising money for this cause today, but what's going to be my significance three years from now, five years from now? And they've really become sponges for those things. And that's the piece I really enjoy working with nonprofits with. Good. That's good. Peter Drucker's pretty uh, well-known management consultant kind of thinker. He, I think he was called the father of, of management. Yes, he was. Uh, he is. And, and he... Um, he has a quote. He says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I wanted you to comment on that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think from his perspective, he's right. Uh, because there are lots of organizations that have a great strategic plan. Um, you know, I mean, let's look at the retail industry as a whole. And let's think about the difference between a strategic plan and the ability to create engagement and loyalty. Because at the end of the day, owning a business is about creating loyalty to you and your brand. That's the, success, that's the path to success, right? It's, there are some businesses that focus on a transaction. There are some that, some that focus on the relationship. But if you look in the retail industry and you think about the businesses who, they have a strategic plan, but their culture is the foundation of it. You look at a SACS. Highest, one of the highest customer loyalties in any retail business in the world. And it's because they're a very culture-driven company. Okay, You look at a Nordstrom's, again, a very culture-driven company. I mean, look at it, look at it, the difference between a Ritz-Carlton and a Marriott. Marriott is a great hotel chain, right? I, I stay at Marriott's. But there's a, when you go stay at a Marriott, as soon as you walk into place, it does not feel the same as a Four Seasons or a Ritz-Carlton. And there are Marriott's that charge just as much per night for their room as a Four Seasons and a Ritz-Carlton. And it goes back to the cultural belief all the way down to the person that opens your door in valet at the hotel, right? So that culture is part of their soul. And to me, 
Strategy is your path, but culture is your soul. And you can't go anywhere unless your soul is willing to take you there, I believe. Otherwise, you know, you compromise. You have to compromise yourself. And I think that's why businesses, you know, you look at the book Good to Great that Jim Collins wrote. One of the predominant factors in the companies that went from good to great and stayed great was they didn't compromise culture. So they were able to survive recessions. They were able to survive environmental threats and challenges from competitors. They were able to survive global threats when global business really began to evolve because they never compromised the culture of their who, their what, and their why. That's good. Real good. What are some practical things that a business owner or leader can do to start shaping? Let's, let's say uh, somebody hears this podcast and, and, and they, they have an epiphany and they say, well, man, I've got it all wrong. I'm focused on processes and tasks, and I really need to be focused on culture and people development. What, what are some practical things that they can do to begin to build uh, culture in their organization? I think the first thing is, is you really have to define who you are. Right, and I don't mean your manufacturer siding or windows or chemicals. You really have to define from a perspective of deep inside who is that I want to be. And when you when you're able to identify that, then it's easy to identify the type of culture you want to have, right? And once you identify the type of culture that you want to have, it all it's all based on communication. You have to have tremendous open communication. You have to be a very good listener. You have to very have very open feedback in order for it to be successful. You have to be willing to hear from your team that you're not living up to what you said your culture was going to be. And then you have to be willing to take steps to address that. And that creates credibility in you and in the culture. And in my mind, once you've got that right, the process, the operation, the execution, those are much easier because when people believe in what you're trying to do, they're willing to do a lot to help you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. That's good. Yeah, it reminds me of the, uh, the law of the lid. Yeah. That an organization will only grow to the, the level of the top leader. Is that right? You, do you agree with that? I agree with that. Good. You, you, you did some, now you've got a, a solid education uh, resume, and I'm going to share a little bit of, about that um, outside the podcast, but you did some training with kind of the pinnacle of uh, military education, the West Point uh, Academy. Can you share some lessons learned, maybe one or two there, or maybe the top lesson learned there? Yeah, that was really incredible. Mercedes-Benz worked with a group called the Thayer Leadership Development Group at West Point. They're all West Point grads. They have their institute there at the campus. Um, and, you know, many of them are some very senior enlisted people, but the vast majority of them are people who are retired colonels all the way up to three stars who have served in multiple theaters of combat. And I think, you know, it's interesting you ask that question because almost the message from everyone who spoke during this leadership program they spoke about accountability. You know, um, they spoke about uh, listening, right? The, the interesting thing to me is some of these people are retired two- and three-star generals, so obviously they carried a lot of respect just because of the, and of the position. They also carried a lot of responsibility. But the interesting thing to me was how important the lowest person on the battlefield was to them just as much as the senior aide was to them and how communication from that level back was so important and feedback of are we giving you what you need? Are we enabling you to be successful? I think that was one of the biggest things that really struck me. And, and, and they brought that in the perspective of is that's the way you build a true team. Mm -hmm a team that believes in each other, that supports each other, and picks each other up. When you have that respect, when you have that trust, when you have that accountability, both up and down, then the team can become very successful and accomplish way more than an individual can. That's good. That is good. 
I want to talk a little bit about um, the integrity and identity of a leader. Um, I, there's a neat quote, and I can't remember who it's from, but it says that integrity is the only path that won't get you lost, or integrity is the only path that will keep you focused on what's most important. Can you talk a bit about that? Oh, yeah. I think, you know, as a, as a leader, your integrity is the credibility with your team. And, you know, I... I don't think that you can do anything away from your business or within your business to compromise that because when you do, you lose credibility with your team. Um, and, you know, you look at it and that people are always watching you, even though you, when you don't think they're watching you, they're always seeing you. And I think, uh, you know, as a leader, you have the responsibility to set the example, right? And that example is without compromise. That's good. Speaking of leaders, you've had the opportunity to shake the hand of seven presidents. I have, yes. It's actually quite cool. That's impressive. I'm still working on my first. Um, which, but I want to know which of the presidents that you've shaken the hand of has stood out the most and why. And you, you probably know a lot more um, about each that you've shaken the hand of. you probably researched them, but can you share about that? Yeah, Senior or, Bush. Senior Bush, okay. Yeah, he really cared about people. He was a great listener. Um, I got involved with an organization many years ago, and it was the Bush Community Impact Foundation, and it was to bring liter literacy to inner-city schools. So we would have golf tournaments and different charity events, and he was there at every one of them, he and his wife, Barbara. But he was so sincere when he would talk to people and listen to them. And he remembered so much. Uh, I remember I had the chance, you know, he's a really, he's a speed golfer. So when he would come to the golf tournament, he would play like two holes with a team, two holes with a team, two holes with a team. And so the first year I had the opportunity to play two holes with him. And he asked me questions about who I was, my wife, my children. And then that night at our dinner, I went up to him because I'd asked him if he would sign a baseball for me, and he was, of course I would. So um, I brought a baseball and got him to sign a baseball because not many people know that, you know, he was the first baseman at Yale. And um, so he signed this baseball for me, and he said, well, is your wife Teresa here? Wow. And I thought, you know, I probably spent two minutes talking to this man, but six hours later, he remembers enough about my wife's name to ask me if she's there with me. So I said, yes, she is. And he says, well, why don't you bring her over? I would like to meet her. You know, so I think, to me, he's probably the most, this is going to sound horrible, but normal human of all of them. Hmm. You know, and you think the guy was a director of the CIA, a vice president, president. But, man, he's just a good person. Yeah, he made a lot of mistakes. We all do. He made some bad decisions. We all make bad decisions. But the sincerity of who he was and what he believed in at his core never changed. And I think to me that was just very impactful, you know, having been around him a little bit. It goes back to the integrity thing that we, um, yeah. that we spoke about. Um, I, I read a transcript from a talk that you gave uh, a while back, I think maybe two or three years ago. And it... One of your, one of the things that you said is uh, that um, that you have a goal of creating a footprint in life that leaves both me and those I encounter better for having us engaged. Uh, how do you go about doing that? It's interesting because today I was meeting with a group and they were talking about networking and I was giving them my perspective on networking and my perspective on networking is I'm not there to network me. I'm there to network you. So I think that footprint is, is everybody I try to come in contact with, I do come in contact with, I try to learn about them. Um, I try to understand them in a way that if there's some impact positive I can leave in their life or for a suggestion or thought, that's what my goal is with everybody I come in contact with. So I really try to leave that positive impact every footprint I make in life. Um, I wasn't always like that. You know, early in my life, I was more about me than I was others. But, you know, I reached a point in my life where I realized that if I focus on others, like within my team, if I focus on them achieving their goals, I'm never going to have to worry about achieving my goals. Especially if the culture is collaborative and we believe in the same things. And I think that's the same way in life. If I help you 
accomplish the things you want to accomplish and you help people accomplish the things they want to accomplish, somewhere along that line, I'm going to come in contact with someone who's going to be able or want to help me accomplish something I'm trying to accomplish without having to go search for it. Yeah, it's the, the idea of, sounds like the idea of, uh, it's, it's not a, a sum total gain. You're, you, right. When you give, you don't lose. No, you never lose. Yeah. And you don't have to expect back because you're always going to end up getting back more than what you give. You're a good example of a giver. Oh, thank you. I want to go back to your dad just for a second. He, he was a Army Ranger. Yes. Impressive. A CIA officer. He worked, he worked in intelligence for the CIA in the early 60s. He spent 30 years as a police officer. Yes, he did. And he, he got his PhD. Yes, he did. And, and you had the, not, not everybody has the opportunity to have a father like this. He, you said that he was one of your greatest mentors. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, if, you could, if you could think of one, one lesson that will stay with you and that you'd like to share with everybody else that he taught you, what would it be? And if we've already covered yeah. that. I mean, other than the thirst for knowledge, I think the, the biggest thing that he was able to really impact me with and share with me was that uh, nothing in life, there's nothing in life you can't overcome. And things are never as bad as you think they are. Right. And so I think he really, you know, he was the kind of person that um, the glass was always more than half full, regardless of life's challenges, because he was going to find a way to fill it up. And I think that's the biggest thing. You know, my talks with my father up until he passed away, when I lived away, you know, I enjoyed my weekly conversations with him because it didn't matter what was going on in my life, whether it was good or struggling. He always got me to understand that there was the opportunity for improvement, right? And I think that's the biggest thing that he really, you know, planted the seed in me for. That's good. Very good. Um, this kind of plays into in the next question. Uh, he taught you that you can overcome challenges. Can you share one of your greatest challenges and, and how you overcome that, how you overcame that? Um, I think most people wouldn't realize this, but I'm an introvert. And I had a great fear of not just talking to people, but speaking in public. And uh, so he really got me to understand that if you're talking to people or speaking with people for the right reasons, then it should be comfortable for you. And, you know, he was the person that actually talked me into joining Toastmasters when I was very young because he said, that's the only organization I know that's going to help you get over your fear of talking to people. Uh, but I think that was, you know, one big thing that he really helped me through. I'm, I'm a natural introvert. If we were to do a profile assessment right now, I'm like far left introvert. All of my personality traits are slanted to be an introvert. But I learned to be an extrovert when I need to be. And I learned that leaders have to push themselves out of their comfort zones in order for them to be effective. And that many times when we're going outside of our comfort zone, that pain and that discomfort is what pushes our growth. And I think that's really what he, what he got me to understand is to constantly push yourself out of your comfort zone. That's great. So you would recommend Toastmasters for people. Now, I hear that, that public speaking is one of the greatest fears in humanity. It probably is. <laughs> but I think Toastmasters does a very good job of forcing you to get up in front of a first small group in the beginning and potentially a larger group. I mean, it was effective for me um, because it gave me confidence on having the ability to stand up and speak in front of people. That's awesome. I want to I want to move in a, a little bit about you giving back and kind of what you're passionate about as we kind of wrap things up and and you you are a humble leader. Um, I've never heard you and I've heard you speak many times and I've sat down with you in private many times. I've never heard you tout about your accomplishments and and what you do for the community. Now, since I'm in the community, I see it. I don't you don't have to say it. It's kind of seen throughout the community. Um, and there's a couple cool things that I want to share and, and just get, get your thoughts on them. Um, we recently had a, uh, a high school football player um, who was hit on the field and went into a coma. And you, you helped him out without any, 
it's just something you did because you have a big heart and you do that often you care about people you care about things and and another great uh, thing that you're passionate about is animals and did, now did you start a rescue yeah I did actually that's kind of a contradiction I'd never owned the pet okay. until about four years ago five maybe it's like six now but when we moved here you know Teresa had always wanted a dog my wife and I said okay we'll get you a dog when we move here and long story short we went and got a dog and Teresa ended up having to travel so I thought okay well I'll let the dog sleep with me while she's gone I bought her a car seat for my car because I was taking her with me to meet with contractors and things and so she became daddy's little girl um, but I guess I really got into rescue when one of our friends on Facebook had posted this 12-year-old Westie who was blind and diabetic, and her mother, was, the owner, was critically ill, and the kids weren't taking very good care of the dog. And Teresa and I were like, man, you know, a dog like that really deserves to be able to live the last few years of its life out somewhere where it's taken care of and loved. So we contacted them, and we ended up adopting the dog. Um, that was our first rescue dog that we adopted. And within a week, we had gotten cookie eye surgery. They had to remove her left eye. They did lens replacement in the right eye. She had great vision. We brought her home on Christmas Eve, so she became our Christmas cookie. And uh, we give her insulin twice a day, you know. And she's just turned into this wonderful dog who has so much energy and so much love to give. And so that was the beginning of understanding that... There are so many animals out there that are mistreated, you know, and people want to blame it on our shelters, but it's not the shelter's fault. It's a community issue. A shelter, our, this shelter in our community brings in almost 50% more animals every year than they're built to hold and manage. Mm -hmm. So at some point, they have to do something about that, and what they have to do is they are forced to euthanize dogs for space and cats for space. So I began to help rescues with rescuing dogs and transporting them and finding homes for them. And then one of the people that I was involved with helping, uh, we ended up becoming a partner and we opened up our own rescue in Tomball. We bought some property. Uh, we have several buildings out there. We have a mobile vet clinic. Uh, we have a young lady who runs it for us who is a certified trainer, canine behavioral specialist. And so we focus on rescuing dogs that are going to be euthanized for whatever reason, either because they have medical issues or because of space. And so we bring them into our rescue. We get them healthy. We get them socially um, connected. You know, we have dog socials with small dolls, medium size, large size. We work on behavioral issues. And then we find adoptions for them. So, Where do you find the adoptions? Um, through social media a lot. We have now have developed a large network of people who find people for us, uh, and we work with several outreach programs that have people that are looking to adopt a dog, and they're not uh, breed-specific. They just want a dog to provide a great home to. They want a companion. So really, in, mostly in those areas. You sit on a lot of nonprofit boards. You do a lot for the community. Can you tell us about a couple other nonprofits that you have a big heart for and, and, and why a couple more? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the biggest ones is Canopy, uh, the Cancer Survivor Center at Memorial. Uh, one of the reasons is because I have three children that are cancer survivors, all under the age of 27. So, you know, I have um, a, a real passion for cancer victims and what they go through. Um, but, you know, Canopy is not medicinal. It's very therapeutic if you go there. The designer that designed it and built it, built it like a very luxurious home. You know, we have over 95 programs there for families of people going through cancer treatment, for cancer victims, for cancer survivors, for friends of people who are going through cancer treatment. Um, we have a tremendous amount of free resources there. Uh, we have wig fittings and we don't charge for that. We do prosthetic fittings and we don't charge for that. So we have a great partner in Memorial who helps subsidize a lot of it. But we also have uh, an event every year that's called In the Pink of Health and it's become a great uh, collaboration with 
canopy and provided a lot of funds for it. Um, but it really fills a need in the community that very few communities have the ability to meet. So I think that's you know really one of the big passionate ones for me. How about one more? Um, I think the other one would probably be uh, the pavilion because they have the ability to Cynthia make it in Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion. Um, you know, their arts outreach and arts education program has such an impact on people outside of the woodlands. So they are able to connect into areas where kids may never be introduced to any form of art and connect them to art, which I think enables them to develop their creativity. And, you know, every study in the world shows that if a child is involved in an arts or sports, they build greater self-confidence. They have greater engagement in school. They learn more, and they build a better foundation for their future life. And I think, you know, the Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion and the foundation that, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Mitchell put together and that, uh, you know, is part of that whole foundation, it, that's its really its focus is to find a way to bring the arts to those who can't come to it. Incredible. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know that Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion is a nonprofit organization. They know about the rock concerts, but the, the Mitchells were had a great vision, and that is, is that rock pays for Bach. So the rock concerts are the funding mechanism for the nonprofit to bring arts education, to bring cultural awareness to the community, to bring lots of scholarships to kids to go study different forms of art in school. So it's really cool the way the true organization of the Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion is created and operates. It's not a concert venue for rock concerts. It is a community outreach foundation who's funded by rock concerts. Great business model. Huh? It's a great business model. You are you're a great leader, and you're also you're also a college professor. Um, and, and you, you do leadership development and culture, and you have a, uh, a conference coming up, the Clarity to Win Experience. Can you share a little bit more about that and where people can find out about that? Yeah, so it's actually really cool. Uh, I was asked to become engaged with it with someone that I met when I lived in Southern California who's a retired executive for a, a Fortune 100 company, and his post-executive career is all focused on C-level, you know, CEO, COO, C-suite level leadership development and performance coaching. And so we partnered with a couple of golf coaches who focus on the mental side of, go, of golf, the process side of golf, not necessarily the swing side. So we're having this event at Aviara, which is a golf resort in La Jolla, California. And we're really going to focus on... Um, the impact of leadership, the impact of culture, how to really be the type of servant leader that brings clarity, that brings significance to your personal life, your organization. And that's what the whole event, the whole conference is about. Uh, we have a website. It's called Clarity to Win. Uh, you can go there. We have a Facebook page. Um, or you can reach out and contact me if you're interested in it. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to limit it to 20 people. Um, we're about halfway there right now. Um, so, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity left in it, but I really think it's going to be something significant that really want to have some personal growth and bring something back with them that's going to allow them to make a positive impact. That's good. How can people find out more about Turbo Consulting? Um, well, I have a website. It's not very interactive yet because I actually kind of gotten a little too busy to put the focus on it. I should have, but we have a website that's called turboconsulting.com. It's got my contact information on there, my phone number. Um, I think that's the easiest way or they can reach out to me. I have people contact me on Facebook. It was interesting. I've sort of gone on this coffee tour where people have reached out to me on Facebook or emailed me through the website and said, hey, I'd like to go have coffee with you. So we go have coffee and we begin to talk, and then it's led to, well, I'd like for you to come work with me and my organization or my team. And so it's uh, it's interesting how a coffee tour kind of helped me uh, start a career that a little bit quicker than I thought I would be able to. Good. 
what excites you about the future, um, whether it's an industry, technology, what excites you about the future? I think one of the things that excites me about the future in this community is we are beginning to see so many engaged young leaders who are beginning to want to find out what their significance is and how they can make an impact. And, you know, they're not focused on as much on them as they are on what they can do, what positive impact they can make. And to me, that's really exciting. You know, there are several young entrepreneur networks in our community and groups, and the focus of every one of them, because I go to speak with them, I'm a mentor to many of them, and they're really, their primary focus is, how do I make a difference? You know, it's really cool. And I think the thing about that generation is, is they're very aware of what social responsibility should look like. So I think that's a significant pillar in their cultural self. That's good. And you, you've, you've done a good job of helping develop those leaders. I'm one of them. I've benefited from that. Uh, why is that important to you? I think we have a responsibility to leave a generation, a footprint, a foundation for those that follow us, right? I think, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate that I had mentors that would take time and share themselves with me. And I think that we as leaders um, have the same responsibility to develop the leadership that follows us. Mm-hmm. I think otherwise we're not a leader. Mm-hmm. We're a businessman or we're a businesswoman or we're an educator. You know, we're not a leader. That's good. Two more questions. If I left the country for 10 years and, and returned, what would you be up to? What, what does it look like? Wow, 10 years so 10 years from now? Oh, man. <laughs> I'd probably still be teaching college. I'd probably still be reading about two books a week. But I'd probably be spending a lot more time on a beach with my wife and my dogs because that's where she likes to be. Or on a golf course with my friends playing golf because that's where I prefer to be. That's good. Can you, uh, last question, can you recommend a couple resources, maybe books, maybe your top two, three books for somebody who's interested in developing themselves? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the ones that I'm probably in the 20th process of reading is Leading Like Jesus. Mm. I think it's very impactful because I don't think there was any greater servant leader than Jesus. And I think, honestly, whether you are a very religious person or not, there are so many things you can learn from that book about servant leadership and the impact that being a servant leader can have on others. So I think that's the first one. I think another one that I've really gotten a lot of value out of is the book Good to Great. Uh, I've read it many times. I think the more you read it, the more clarity it brings to you on what the message truly is. And, you know, from a business perspective, one of the biggest messages is you can't compromise culture for anything. Um, You know, I think uh, another one that uh, is really impactful for me right now, and I'm on like my fifth reading of it, and it's kind of become significant with me with some of the small businesses that I'm working with, is a book called Rocket Fuel. And it really defines the relationship in an entrepreneur's business when they reach that point of growth where they're no longer able to be the facilitator and the implementer of that growth. So it's at that point in business, they either need to have someone within their team that has the ability to facilitate that growth, execute the plan, or they need to go find someone who can. And it talks about this VI relationship, which is visionary implementer, and how they really become one. And in most cases, the visionary actually ends up in some ways working for the implementer because you can only execute so much at a time. And many great entrepreneurs have many visions and they overwhelm themselves with the next great idea or the next great opportunity. And they fail to focus on the execution piece or they don't no longer have the ability to focus on the execution piece. That's good. One more question I lied earlier. When are you going to write your book? Because you got a lot to share with people. And, and in saying that, I want to thank you for all that you do for the community. Uh, you set an example for aspiring leaders to follow. Um, 
Andrew Carnegie has a, a he was a fantastic leader. Yes, fantastic he was philanthropist. He says, as as he got older, he stopped uh, listening to what people said and started watching what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get to know somebody. Um, I watch what you do, and you do a lot. So when are you going to write your book? Well, you're like the tenth person that's asked me that, and actually, I have someone who's pushing me through it. So I've started the process of writing outlines for the chapters. Uh, so I'm in that process. Uh, so I have three outlines of three chapters created right now. And after I have a couple of more, then I'm going to begin to share them with this individual who has written several books, has written some Amazon bestsellers, and has offered to kind of be a mentor and a coach for me through this process. So I would say, you know, within a year, um, I will have a book ready to go to publishing. Good. I look forward to reading it. And I, again, I thank you for investing in Dell Institute and everything else that you do. It's, a, it's incredible. Thanks. Well, thank you, Terry. Thank you very much. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org. That's B-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact.